Hi, my name is Amir Zaydan. I'm an associate professor of medicine at Yale University in the section of hematology. And I'm here today to talk to you about my presentation about management of lower risk myelodysplastic syndromes that I gave in a meeting in Chicago recently in the American Society of Hematology meeting on hematologic malignancies. So the presentation I gave focused on three general areas. The first area was to make sure uh, that the diagnosis is correctly myelodysplastic syndromes and is not a mimic of MDS. The second part of the presentation focused on the different prognostication schema or the different uh, tools that we use to define the risk of myelodysplastic syndromes so that we can make the right decisions regarding treatment. And the third and the last part of the presentation focused on the current uh, treatment approaches that we currently use for the management of lower-risk myelodysplastic syndromes, as well as treatments that are investigational but are in advanced testing and are potentially coming to be used in the community setting in the next one to two years. So I always start any presentation about myelodysplastic syndromes by emphasizing the fact that some of the patients who present with myelodysplastic syndromes, it can be quite a difficult diagnostic dilemma. And this pertains especially to patients who have a low plast count. So their plast count in the bone marrow is less than 5%. And especially those who have normal cytogenetics or normal karyotype. And those patients, especially when they have a low degree of dysplasia in the bone marrow, it can be quite tricky to make that diagnosis because many times there are certain abnormalities that can mimic MDS. For example, nutritional deficiencies, especially B12 deficiency, folate deficiency, copper deficiency, and that's something that we especially think about in patients who had gastric bypass or some other optimal absorption. Those patients can have significant uh, dysplasia in the bone marrow when the deficiency is severe, and that can be mistaken for myelodysplastic syndromes in some patients if the testing was not done for these. So I always recommend looking for excluding those nutritional abnormalities, as I mentioned, especially in patients who have low plast count and those who have normal cytogenetics. The other thing to think about are other myeloid conditions sometimes can mimic MDS, for example, to some degree, aplastic anemia or pure red cell aplasia, other hematologic problems, but also rheumatologic conditions such as lupus or rheumatoid arthritis can affect the bone marrow in a way that makes it dysplastic and also can mimic MDS. Another important aspect to look at is the use of other medications. Patients who are, for example, on HIV medications or any medication that really interferes with the DNA synthesis, some, some of the antibiotics, for example, those can affect the rapidly dividing cells in the bone marrow and can give a picture that mimics lower-risk MDS. So MDS in the lower-risk format is essentially a diagnosis of exclusion. You really have to exclude these other causes before you proceed with the management because you definitely don't want to treat someone who does not have MDS with MDS-specific therapies. An important addition to our diagnostic manual for basically to look at the different uh, etiologies is the assessment for the next generation sequencing panels to look for MDS-related genetic abnormalities. So the presence of some of those abnormalities is not diagnostic for MDS. None of those mutations, for example, in T2 or SF3B1 is diagnostic or pathognomic for MDS 
But the presence of those changes can help us basically exclude other factors. In other words, if you don't have a gene abnormality, it's unlikely that this is MDS because more than 90% of patients with MDS will have a genetic mutation in, in, when you test them. So it's something that I usually include in my diagnostic workup. And now we have entities such as CHIP, donor hematopoiesis of indeterminate potential, in which you don't have cytopenias, but you have those genetic abnormalities, but also some, something called PCAS, double CUS, clonal cytopenia of unknown significance. And those are the patients who have cytopenias and have a genetic mutation, but they do not meet the diagnostic criteria for MDS based on their blood counts or based on their bone marrow change. So the first step is to really make sure that this is truly MDS and you have ruled out any other factors that could mimic MDS. Once you have made the diagnosis of MDS, the next step is really to understand what is the risk score of them, the disease. And there are several tools that we currently use to do that. So we have the IPSS or the revised IPSS. So the IPSS, the International Prognostic Scoring System, is the tool that has been around the longest since 1997, and it was revised in 2012. And I think the revision has made it more accurate, and it's currently what I use in my medical practice. Both tools, and really almost all the other tools that are used in clinical practice, depend on the blood counts, basically, what are the blood counts that are affected by the cytopenias, and how low are the numbers, basically, the severity of the cytopenia, as well as the presence of cytogenetic abnormalities and the number of the plasts in the bone marrow and the blood. So between these three factors, we calculate a risk score. Some of the other tools use also other factors such as age, uh, transfusion, dependency, and um, incorporate these into the calculation of the risk score. We discussed some of the genetic alterations that occur in MDS. While there are ongoing efforts right now to incorporate, the, incorporate these formally in the risk stratification tools, there are issues related to the standardization of these genetic mutation assays and how they should be done, which genes, what is the level at which is considered important or not, whether they are polymorphisms or benign variants versus pathogenic mutations. And because of all of these factors, they still have not been formally incorporated into any decision tool. So we use these decision tools generally to give the patient a risk score. And for example, in the revised IPSS, you give the patient one of five risk categories, which is very low, low, intermediate, high, or very high. And generally, we eventually treat the patient really from a pragmatic point of view or from a clinical decision point of view as a lower risk MDS. And those would be the patients with the very low and low revised IPSS score or high-risk MDS, higher-risk MDS, and those are the ones with the high or the very high. Now, for the intermediate risk, revised IPSS risk category, there are different ways uh, to try to better understand where the patient lies, and those include using specific tools that was developed for those patients or using the specific score that you get in the revised IPSS. So if you have a score of three and a half, you would be along the lines of the lower risk MDS, while if you have four or four and a half, you would be treated along the lines of the higher risk MDS. 
we also sometimes look at the genetications or incorporate age and comorbidities and all of these factors in terms of how we decide how to treat someone with intermediate risk revised IPSS. So after you've done your risk calculation and you decided the patient has lower risk myelodysplastic syndromes, then you start thinking about the treatments for those patients. And the treatment is somewhat linked to the goals of care. The goals of care in lower risk MDS generally are quality of life, minimizing transfusion needs, minimizing infections, minimizing hospitalizations, trying to keep the patient out, patient as much as possible. We currently don't have any therapies that prolong survival or have been shown to prolong survival in patients with lower risk MDS. And we generally always talk about bone marrow transplantation as the only potential way to cure patients with myelodysplastic syndromes. However, using this clinical decision tools and in the literature, basically, what we find is that patients with lower risk MDS are better not transplanted when they are diagnosed, but rather at the time when they progress, but before they go all the way to acute myeloid leukemia. So while we don't generally transplant them when we diagnose them initially, we follow them carefully. And if the patient is young or within the age at which he can be transplanted and they are donors and the patient is willing to undergo the risk, once the patient has progression, which is usually defined by swelling of the blood counts or development of new cytogenic abnormalities or increase in the plasma count, along those lines, then we think about bone marrow transplant, but not usually from the initial diagnosis. The most common Indication for treatment for patients with lower risk MDS is usually anemia. Anemia occurs in 90% of MDS patients. Around half of those patients will be transfusion dependent. And usually the first line treatment is often erythropoietin stimulating agents. For patients who have an, an erythropoietin level of basically high erythropoietin level, usually more than 200 to 500, I usually use 500, but if the erythropoietin level is high, more than 500, and they have frequent transfusion needs, the chance of response to ESAs is actually quite low, around 7%. But for patients who have low equal level and do not need frequent transfusions, especially if they are anemic but not you know, needing transfusions, those patients are the ones who are most likely to respond to erythropoiesis stimulating agents. One of the issues I see in the patients that get referred to my clinic is that sometimes the patients are underdosed, so they don't get enough dosing of the erythropoiesis stimulating agents. Whether you are using the short-acting erythropoietin, which is given once a week, and you should give doses in the range of 60 to 80,000 international units, I've seen patients being treated with lower doses or renal doses of ESAs, and those are not adequate for MDS. If you are using the longer version, the longer-acting versions like darpipoietin, you want to use a dose of 300 to 500 microgram, and you can give that every two weeks to three weeks. But you really want to give the patient a high enough dose and you want to give a therapeutic trial for a good amount of time, which is usually around three months before you decide that this is not working. There is some data about adding low-dose granulocyte growth factor as well to some of those patients, especially those who have ring hydroplast. If erythropoiesis stimulating agents don't work, generally what we would recommend in those patients are the use of lenalidomide, the immunomodulatory agent, in patients who have deletion 5Q, lenalidomide works very well. Transfusion independence in 65% of patients and a median duration for around 2.2 years. While in patients who do not have deletion 5Q, the response rate is much lower. It's around 25% and the duration of response is around 30 weeks as a median. 
And it's given orally, some patients get fatigue, get GI upset, get rashes. So it's not a very ideal solution, but unfortunately, we don't have a lot of great options at this point. The other option is to use hypomethylating agents. And the approved dosing of azacitidine is seven days, but there is data about using five days or even three days of azacitidine or decitabine with encouraging data so far in lower risk MDS patients. However, I'm waiting for more data, bigger studies to kind of use those shorter courses. I'm currently using five days of azacitidine if I cannot get the seven-day course. Often, patients don't like the idea of having to come seven days a month or five days a month for injections when they are just anemic. And of course, the issue related to the injection, local reactions or some fatigue and GI upset and all of that. But again, if the patient is not responding to erythropoiesis stimulating agents or the ESAs fail, after some time, you are really limited in, in terms of your options. Uh, another drug that is in advanced development but not yet available on the market is losfatercept which is a transforming growth factor at beta ligand. Basically, it inhibits the transforming growth factor pathway. It's a ligand trap, so it removes the ligands of this pathway, which has been shown to suppress erythropoiesis in patients with MDS at the late stage. It works at a different time point than erythropoiesis-stimulating agents. So there was a post-phase 3 trial called the Medalist trial in patients who were transfusion-independent. But this trial was in patients who have subtype of MDS called refractory anemia with ring plasma, who either were not responding to erythropoiesis stimulating agents or were less likely to respond because they have high erythropoietin levels. The phase 3 trial was positive. It led to transfusion independence in 38% of patients compared to 13% transfusion independence in patients who were treated with placebo. So this trial has been presented to the FDA and is currently being considered for approval. And if this drug gets approved, it could potentially add an important tool to treat patients with lower risk MDS who have ring sideroplasts who are not responding to ESAs or who responded but lost their response. Another option that we use in patients with lower risk MDS is immunosuppressive therapy. We and other groups have found that the use of these drugs can lead to complete responses in 11% of patients and some kind of response, including hematologic improvement in almost half of the patients who are treated. However, the choice of the patients is very challenging for these agents. There are no clear ways to find those patients. Some of the data quoted in the literature indicate the use of young age or the presence of HLA-DR15, TNH clone, or the presence of trisomy 8 or normal carry type as a way to choose patients for this type of therapy. But we actually conducted a retrospective multi-center national study between centers in the U.S. and Europe. And we found that none of those were predictors in our analysis, but the only predictor was the presence of bone marrow hypocellularity. This was the only predictor in multivariate analysis for the use of immunosuppressive therapy. Of course, the average age or the median age for patients with MDS in the mid-70s and the use of ATG anti-thymocyte globulin might be difficult in older patients. So sometimes I use cyclosporin alone rather than the combination. But this is another option. Of course, clinical trials remain, in my view, the most important tool to treat patients with MDS so that we can continue to improve outcomes and discover new active therapies. So I always encourage providers to talk to the patient about clinical trials and try to refer them 
for clinical trials. There are a number of agents that are being tested currently. We are hopeful that over the next five years, we can have more options for our patients and more new drugs similar to what has been happening in patients with acute myeloid leukemia in the last few years. So this was an overview of how I diagnose risk and how I do the risk stratification and how do I treat how I treat those patients who have the lowerest myelodysplastic syndrome. It was a pleasure to talk to you today, and please feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions uh, through my email, which will be provided to you for this presentation. Thank you very much.